Please turn with me in your Bible to Matthew chapter 9. We're continuing to work our way through the Gospel of Matthew. And we are going to be covering verses 14 to 17 today. We've looked over the last few weeks as Jesus heals a paralytic man. And then he calls Matthew the tax collector last Sunday. And then Jesus goes and shares a meal with the tax collectors and sinners because doctors need to go where the sick people are, not where the healthy people are. And Jesus has come to call not the righteous or those who think that they are righteous, but sinners to repentance. And now he's going to receive a question from the followers, the disciples of John the Baptist. I'll read the text for us and then we'll pray again briefly. Matthew chapter 9, again, this is God's Word, starting in verse 14. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made." Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins and so both are preserved. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I do ask that you would help us to understand the meaning of this passage. I pray, God, that you would make our hearts submissive to your word, that you would give us true humility and eyes that see Jesus for who he is, which is the the problem that those around him at this point in this story have. They're not seeing him for who he is and what he's really come to do. So I pray if there is any blinder in 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 the eyes of our heart, that you would remove it, whatever it might be that's holding us back, and that you would help us to see who Jesus really is and help us to see the glory of who he is. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, the sermon today, I'm simply titling New Wine and New Wineskins. And I've got an introduction in three points, and they're very brief, so I'll just tell, you, I'll tell them to you uh, right now. The introduction is going to be about the topic of fasting, which is what brought about this situation, this com- uh, confrontation or question uh, between the disciples of John and Jesus. So the introduction is on fasting. And then I have three brief points. Uh, number one is the groom. Number two is the garment, and number three is the wineskins. So an introduction on fasting, and the three points, the groom, the garment, and the wineskins. Now, if you'll flip with me back to the Sermon on the Mount, to chapter 6, just for a moment, you will see here, if you remember where the Lord's Prayer occurs, chapter 6, you remember that Jesus is addressing here three major issues of Uh, practicing your righteousness in the Jewish world at the time. And if you look at your headings, probably in your Bible, depending on what translation, you probably have some headings in chapter 6. And the first few verses uh, are about giving to the needy, essentially giving alms. The next section is about prayer. And the next section after the Lord's Prayer is about fasting. And so the the Jewish mind at the time, the way that uh, things were working at the time of Christ, the the three ways that really religion was commonly practiced were those three things. So that's what you did. You gave to the needy, you prayed to the Lord, and fasting was just a regular part of life in first century Judaism. 
And Jesus, of course, in the sermon corrects our motives on why we're doing those things, right? Don't do it to be seen by others. Then your reward is already here on this earth. No, do it in secret. When you're giving, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. When you pray, go into your closet, into your room, quietly close the door, and your father who sees in secret will reward, will reward you. And that's Jesus' point there. It's interesting, if you look at verse 16 of chapter 6 of Matthew, he says this, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have their, received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now you notice here, does Jesus assume, uh, we covered this, I, I, you know, if you look back, we covered this passage almost exactly a year ago. So if you want to go back, I, I did a whole sermon on the topic of fasting, and that may not be the first sermon you want to go to, <laughs> but if it is, a year ago we covered, we did a whole sermon on the topic of fasting from this text. I'm not going to replay all that right now, but if you want to know more about that, you can go back and look. But Jesus says here that we should be fasting, uh, not to be seen, but except by our Father. But you notice here, Jesus says, verse 17, but when you fast... Does Jesus assume that fasting would be part of the Christian life? Yes, and I talked about how I was convicted by this a year ago because fasting had not been a part of my Christian life, and uh, we discussed some about why those things are. Now turn back to Matthew chapter 9. As you're turning there, just to remind you of a few things we discussed, in the Old Testament in particular, you see fasting. We saw it uh, in the book of Ezra. Remember when Ezra is deeply grieved by the sins of the people. Remember the intermarriage that's going on where pagans and, and the people of God are intermarrying and there's idolatry coming in? Ezra has a fast. He doesn't eat or drink uh, as he sits there that night in grief. Uh, uh, earlier in Ezra, when he's about to make the return journey, he wants safety for all of his family and children, all that are going with them. And so they fasted and they declared a fast and they prayed to the Lord for a safe journey. We see Nehemiah praying as well over the sins of the people in Nehemiah chapter 9. One of the things fasting is meant to do is to say, the way that I rely on food, I'm going to choose to set aside because I want to rely on the Lord. I'm going to give up the pleasure of a good meal, which is easier said than done, is it not? Skipping a meal, just one meal, is very hard for us to do, I think, in our culture, perhaps harder than most cultures in most of time. And the idea here is saying, I am going to find the satisfaction I look for in food only in the Lord God. I'm going to look for satisfaction in Him as I seek His face in prayer. Fasting may be an expression of desperation before God. Perhaps there's a loved one or a family member who is not a believer and is walking away from the Lord. And you go without food, not because you're trying to earn the salvation of this person, because let's be clear, fasting merits nothing before God. Don't ever think fasting earns something from God, as if you can twist his arm. Look, God, I haven't eaten in three days. You owe me. That is not how this works. The Pharisees had a much more confused notion of what fasting was for, but we're not here to try to manipulate or earn things from God, but it is a way of expressing perhaps desperation before God. It may also be a, a way of expressing deep remorse or sadness before the Lord. Uh, th th those are all legitimate ways in which fasting uh, can, be, can be expressed. But here's the interesting thing of what's happening. Jesus is walking around, months are going by of his active ministry, and we know Jesus did a 40-day fast, right, to start off his ministry. He was tempted by Satan for 40 days. He did, not, he did not eat in the wilderness. But after that point, do we hear about Jesus fasting? No. Do we hear about his disciples fasting? No. And months are going by. Now, just to think about how strange this would be, the, the three-legged stool of the Jewish religion at the time was almsgiving, 
prayer and fasting. They made a pretty big deal about fasting at the time of Jesus. And yes, Jesus gave to the poor. We know that. Yes, Jesus was a man devoted to prayer. Even though he was God in the flesh, he still prayed. He would spend all night in prayer when he was about to choose the disciples, Luke tells us. All night Jesus spent in prayer. It's amazing. But yet fasting was entirely absent after his 40-day fast. There was no fasting in Jesus' ministry. His disciples were not being trained by Jesus to fast. They weren't fasting. In fact, what are they doing? They just got done partying with a bunch of sinners. (laughs) They were at a meal at Levi or Matthew's house, the author of this gospel. They're at Matthew's house. A bunch of tax collectors and sinners are there, and they are eating, no doubt, we're told in Luke's gospel, that Matthew prepared a great banquet for them, and they are eating. Now, they accuse Jesus of being a glutton and a drunkard, remember? Did Jesus overeat? No. Did he overdrink? No. Jesus was not those things, but he was accused of those things because he was not fasting. He was hanging out in these different places, and people thought sometimes the worst of it. But you'll see here, Jesus seems to be missing an important part of the Jewish way of life. And so the question is, Jesus, you claim to be this important figure in redemptive history, and you're missing one of the basics of discipleship? Like, imagine if you had a new pastor walking around telling people that you don't have to pray right now. You would think, this is ridiculous. You don't have to go to church. That's amazing. Well, Jesus does not have any training right now for for fasting. His disciples are not fasting. He's not fasting. Jesus, you're missing a basic component of walking with God. But that was not the case because the people did not know who Jesus really was, and what Jesus was coming to do at this point in time. Let me just say a couple quick more things about fasting. I know you want me to talk about it for the whole sermon, (laughs) but I will will move on in just a moment. But let me say a few more important things about fasting. In the Old Testament, uh, originally, there was only one, this may surprise you if you don't know this already, there was only one commanded day of fasting for Israel in the early parts of their history. Uh, In Leviticus 16, verse 29 and following, it was before the Day of Atonement, remember that big day? Uh, with, the, with the scapegoat and the one that is slaughtered in the temple, we, they were told, it, shall be, it says, it shall be a statute forever. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall fast or literally afflict yourself. It's a word for fasting. And shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your, for all, from all your sins. So do you see the one commanded fast had to do with sin and grief over sin and preparing for atonement? But... I tell you, this was new to me. Remember, we've been studying the post-exile period, remember, after they come back from exile in Babylon with Ezra? And remember, Zechariah and Haggai were the two prophets. Remember that from a few months ago? Well, Zechariah mentions that there were four new fasts that were brought about by the people during their time in exile. I won't go on on this for a long time. just want to mention it because I didn't know about it. This was new to me, okay? And, and so it's interesting. They picked a, a fast, Zechariah 8, 18 and 19 tells us, on the fourth month, the fifth month, the seventh month, and the tenth month. So I had to do some work to figure out why this was, and it turns out they picked specific times when horrible things were happening during the Babylonian exile. So just follow me real quick. On the 10th month is when Nebuchadnezzar laid siege to Jerusalem, so they had a fast remembering the siege. Number two, in the fourth month, two years later, the city was breached. Uh, the, The Babylonians came in, they got through the wall of the city, so they had a fast on the fourth month. And they had a fast on the fifth month because the temple was burned on the fifth month of, that, of the particular year. And on the seventh month, some people of Israel were struck down and killed in 2 Kings 25 and 25. So they had picked four months where particularly horrible things had happened, and they were fasting during the 70 years of exile, we're told. All 70 years, they fasted four different occasions additionally. So there were five fasts, actually, by the time you get to the end of the Old Testament. Now, the Pharisees thought five fasts, that's amateur. We're going to do two fasts a week. 
Jesus mentions this. Remember the Pharisee, the tax collector, went up to the temple to pray, and the Pharisee Pharisee said, I fast how often? Twice a week. That is so far above and beyond anything commanded in the Old Testament, and he is boasting of his righteousness before God. I'm not like this terrible tax collector. Lord, look at my righteousness. I fast twice a week. And we're actually told in later Jewish writings that they would fast on Monday and Thursday. Can you believe it's that specific? Numerous commentators talk about this. Monday and Thursday every week, the Pharisees apparently would fast. And so they were fasting twice a week, which is a whole lot more than I've ever done in my life. And they're saying, wow, we've really really done something. And now John the Baptist has been put in prison. And his disciples are confused about why Jesus does not have fasting as a major part. Did John the Baptist know about harsh treatment of the body? (laughs) He was eating the grasshoppers dipped in honey. Uh, he, was, he was an unusual figure, but he was not into these feasts and these big meals. He was out and his disciples were following in that kind of lifestyle, which was appropriate because he was the forerunner of the Messiah. And he says, we got to make way, make straight paths for the Lord, which means we need to humble ourselves and repent because the Messiah is coming and we need to be ready, which means we need to be humbled. And so part of what no doubt he was instructing his followers in was fasting, a sign of humility and humiliation before the Lord over our sin, preparing for Jesus. All right, now, that's the end of the introduction. Uh, let's move into our first real point, which is the groom. And I'm going to reread uh, Matthew 9, verse 14, and, a couple, and one more verse. Verse 14, then the disciples of John came to him, to Jesus, saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Once again, so many people today will say Jesus was a good teacher, but he wasn't the divine son of God. You can't make sense out of one page of the gospels if Jesus is merely a man teaching nice things, because the things he says about himself are either astonishing in their arrogance or they're true. What did Jesus just say in answer to the question? I'm, I'm, a, I'm a disciple of John the Baptist right now, okay? I walk up to Jesus. Jesus, we fast all the time. John was fasting in the wilderness. We've been fasting over sin and preparing the way. Even the Pharisees, they fast twice a week. Lord, you and your disciples, why aren't you fasting? And Jesus says, I don't think you know what time it is right now. Do do you know who's here? The groom is here. The the bridegroom is is here right now. And they've got to be scratching their head. What is he talking about? See, Jesus is referencing an Old Testament theme. The Old Testament theme is that Yahweh is the bridegroom and Israel's his bride. That's the theme, right? It runs throughout the Old Testament. Just give you a few verses here. Isaiah 54, verse 5, says this, your maker is your husband. The Lord, Yahweh of hosts, is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer, the God of the whole earth. Isaiah 62, 5, for as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom, listen, this is an amazing verse. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. That's an astonishing verse. Can you imagine God? So just picture it. It's your wedding day. You wake up. I can still remember. I put my tux on. I walk outside. 
Okay, it was a suit, not a, not a, not a tux. Don't think a bow tie. Uh, I, I put my suit on. I walk outside my little apartment. And there's this little, like, eight-year-old kid walks outside and just sees me. And we're looking at each other. I'm like, hey, how's it going? He's like, how's it going? And uh, you, you're, you, on the morning of your, of your wedding day, you're obviously nervous. You're excited. You're thrilled by what's happening. I still remember uh, we were in a, a, a room kind of like this room. The back doors close, and the back doors open, and there's Kelly, and she's walking down the aisle. And I, I'm moved to tears because I'm thinking, this is unbelievable that First of all, who, who, what happened? How is this happening right now? What, what is going on right now? Her dad is okay with this. He's walking down the aisle. He's bringing her to me. He's about to hand her off to me. Like, first of all, this should not, what is, what is happening? And I'm overwhelmed by the fact that I'm being entrusted with this incredible gift. God takes that metaphor, that picture and says, as the groom rejoices over his bride, I'm going to rejoice over you. You think, how can that possibly be true? Then listen to this, Hosea chapter 2, in that day declares the Lord, you will, so Yahweh is speaking to his people, in that day declares Yahweh, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal, and I will betroth you to me forever, I'm going to marry you, my people, I will betroth you to me forever, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and mercy, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord, Yahweh. That's the background to the theme of God marrying his people. Jesus, why aren't you fasting? Because I'm the groom and I'm here to meet my bride. What is he saying about himself? Jesus is claiming to be Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, in a human body, standing here going, you don't want to insult the groom and bride, do you? Imagine going to the wedding after it's over. I've, stu- I've stood right here and said it before. The bride and the groom invite you to, and then I'll tell you the directions of where we're going, right? Come celebrate with us. We're going to have an amazing meal together. And imagine you go to the meal right after the wedding, and you sit down, and you say, ah, I'm, I'm fasting, no thank you, I don't really want any of that food. Uh, no, 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 we're, we're, maybe it's the, uh, I heard Kevin Young say, maybe you hope the father-in-law is not saying, it's a day of mourning for us, we uh, the son, the, we're adding a new son-in-law to our family. It's not looking good for my daughter. This is not a good day. We're gonna, and maybe the dad's also thinking, this is very economical if we fast after the wedding. This would be wonderful. I, uh, that would be great. That's what the young said. But no, if you go to the wedding reception and you say, nah, I'm, I don't want to touch any of that food. Is that fitting with what's happening? No, in fact, it's downright rude. It's not becoming of the situation. You don't know what time it is. You don't know where you are. Jesus says right now, for you guys to be fasting, what you think is this great religious observance, you don't understand that we're supposed to be feasting. We're supposed to be celebrating because the groom has finally come. God has been promising this since Isaiah wrote 700 years ago, Jesus could have said. 700 years ago, God said, I'm going to marry my people. I'm going to rejoice over you as a groom over the bride. And Jesus says, I'm here to do just that. How can you possibly fast? The groom is here. You don't fast when the groom arrives. Let's read it again. Verse 15. And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn, that's fasting, as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Now turn with me to the right to John chapter 3.
I'm fearful of going on a rabbit trail here, so I'm going to try to restrain myself a little bit, but let me just have a little bit of a rabbit trail involved here in this moment. John the Baptist is just an incredible person. We just, we're seeing his disciples, right? His disciples are here. But John the Baptist, if his disciples had been paying closer attention, he had already introduced this theme before he was put in jail. John chapter 3 tells us about it. And before I read it, this is the rabbit trail. I don't want to get lost in, but just, just give me a moment. I love John the Baptist. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get to him in Matthew 11 in a few, in a, in a little while. In a few months, perhaps. We'll, we'll get there. We're excited about that. But before we get to that, John the Baptist in the Gospel of John is amazing. Let me just flip to chapter 1 just for a moment. Give me, give me just a moment here. When Jesus is being introduced, everything that John wants to talk about is minimizing himself and lifting up the groom. So just, just look. John chapter 1, verse 6, right after it introduces the Word, made, or the, the word of God, who was with God and was God, verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness, to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness to the light. Verse 19. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. They asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Verse 26, John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Now look at chapter 3. Do you see the humility of John? He doesn't want the spotlight. He is doing everything he can to get, I'm not the Christ, I'm not Elijah, I'm not the prophet, I'm nobody. I'm just a voice announcing the somebody. That's all I'm doing. Don't look at me, look at him. That's John. You've got to love this. And so then chapter 3 is just wonderful here, and the theme of the bridegroom comes right up. John introduces this. Uh, it's a wonderful text. Look with me here. Verse 25 of John 3. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. We don't know exactly what that was about. Verse 26, and they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, that's Jesus, look, he, Jesus, is baptizing and all are going to him. John, you're losing popularity. The Jesus guy, the guy that you introduced, everyone's leaving you and they're leaving us and they're going to him. What are we going to do about that? Verse 27, John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, think best man. The friend of the bridegroom, John is the best man, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Did John get it here? John got it. Think about this. His disciples say, John, um, <clears throat> you were the most popular guy in town just a few months ago. As soon as you baptize Jesus, everyone is leaving you and they are flocking to Jesus. Aren't you concerned you're going to lose your notoriety? And John says, you guys don't get it. I'm not the groom. I'm the best man. I'm the friend of the groom. And my job was to help the bride and the groom meet. I'm the groom. I hear the bridegroom's voice. I rejoice. I help them hold hands. I bring them together. And then I walk away. I go out on the porch. 
I, I, I'm, I'm, off, I'm out of the picture. I'm no longer here. And I get the great joy of introducing God's people to the bridegroom. That's the joy I get. That joy is mine. It's now complete. From now on, the spotlight should be on him, not on me. Let Jesus increase. Let John the Baptist decrease. That's what he says. So was John teaching this thing that Jesus is the groom? Yes, and he does it with great humility. Let's turn back to Matthew 9. Now let's look here, middle of verse 15. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Is Jesus saying that there's never a reason to fast today? No, there's, there are reasons to fast today. In the book of Acts, chapters 13 and 14, Paul and Barnabas and others, they fast. When they're appointing new elders of a church, they fast and pray over them. Fasting is fine now, but you know what's happened? The bridegroom has been taken away. Taken away there is probably a reference to the crucifixion. In fact, I think it almost has to be a reference to the crucifixion. He is taken away. That's not what people were expecting. When the groom shows up, it's a party, and that party's not stopping. It's the Messianic banquet. But Jesus says, actually, I'm going to come twice. The first time I've come to deal with sin, and I'm going to be taken away. And you will fast in that day. And I think that's referring to the groom being taken to heaven. And we are still in the time where we're waiting for the groom to return. So it is appropriate for Christians to fast at times today for the right reason. But here's the, here's the truly remarkable part about what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, picture the analogy. I'm coming to marry my people. And when marriage happens, you've heard this analogy probably. Let's picture us as the bride in this illustration. Because of our sin, we are infinitely in debt. We deserve nothing but judgment. Jesus comes, he's taken away. He bears the weight of the sin of his bride. He dies for his bride. He dies to save his bride. He dies to take away all of our sin. Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, present her to himself without spot or blemish or anything, that she might be holy and without blemish before him. Jesus takes away all of our sin, and what does he do? He credits to us his perfect righteous life. Which means the moment that we are married to Christ, speaking here, I know with a degree of metaphor, but when we, when, we, when we say yes to Christ, when we give our life to Christ, when we trust Christ, in that moment, all of our sin is taken by the groom and it is taken away forever and all of his righteousness is counted as ours. If you think of the illustration, imagine a woman who's greatly in debt, marrying a man who's incredibly wealthy. The moment they get married, she is now incredibly wealthy because her debt is absorbed by his wealth and she now has all of his lavish riches that are hers by simple union with her husband. And we are united to Christ by faith and all the benefits of the gospel are credited as ours, not by works that we have done, but by what Christ has done. Now let's move to point number two, the garment. Verse 16, no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. So, illustration is common sense, right? If you take a new garment, unshrunk cloth, and you have an old piece of, uh, an old piece of clothes that has a hole in it, and you put the unshrunk cloth and you put it over the old garment and you sew it together, well, the unshrunk cloth is going to shrink. As you wash it over and over, it will shrink and shrink and shrink, and it will end up tearing the garment, and the hole that you had originally will become larger than it was before. Okay, well, we can totally understand that illustration, but what is the point of the illustration? Not, not as easy to understand what the point is exactly. Here's what I think Jesus is getting at. Uh, Kevin DeYoung, in his sermon, mentioned Cabbage Patch dolls. 
I don't have much experience with Cabbage Patch dolls. Maybe some of you remember, uh, I guess they still have them, I don't know, but uh, you may remember Cabbage Patch dolls. And he said, Jesus is warning you about a, are you ready? A garment patch Jesus, okay? And here's what he means. I think this is actually an interesting way to think about it. Jesus is not coming to be a patch on to an already established life or religious belief system. So Jesus is not an add-on to Old Testament Judaism, like Moses or an Abraham, and you just kind of add a David or you add a Jesus onto it. He's just, an, he's just a patchwork Jesus. You just patch him onto the old Jude- Jewish religion. That's not how this works. If you try to patch Jesus onto uh, th- that Judaism of that time, you're going to make a worse tear than before. But you can apply this far more broadly. You cannot attach Jesus onto Mormonism. The Jesus of Mormonism is not the Jesus of the Bible. Uh, the Jesus of Mormonism is a created being. Uh, he is the product of a sexual union between God the Father and his first heavenly mother. Uh, and he was a spirit child in heaven before he came to earth. He's the brother of Lucifer. Uh, he has not always existed. Uh, he is not eternal. He is not the same God. You cannot try to patchwork Jesus onto another religious belief system. You cannot patch Jesus onto Islam. In the Quran, it is very clear that Jesus did not die on the cross. It says that in the fourth surah of the book. It says, Jesus did not die on the cross, only a likeness of him, for he would never be subject to such a death. So the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is flat out denied in the second major world religion of, uh, that is around, which is Islam itself. You cannot patch the true Jesus onto another belief system or another system. Now, how about this? Let's take secularism. Or how about just the modern view of the self? People today might say, hey, listen, Jesus, if you patch Jesus onto your life, it'll give you a better marriage. Just take some tips from Jesus. Take some of his moral advice. Just patch it onto your life. You'll, have, you'll be a better parent. You'll have better practices at work. You may even get a promotion if you practice some of the principles Jesus laid down. I'm sorry, but that is a patchwork Jesus. You're not taking all of the true Jesus and really informing your whole life and, by who he is. You're trying to add him on to an existing structure of belief, thought, and life. And guess what's going to happen? You're going to tear the whole thing apart. It's not going to work. Uh, we, we cannot do that. No, no, no. If we're going to accept Jesus, we have to accept him fully and completely. We don't try to patch an old garment. We get rid of the old garment and we take on the new garment of Christ, right? What does Paul say? Take off the old man, take off the clothing of the old man, throw that away and put on the new man in Christ Jesus. Uh, don't, don't try to mix and match religions. Religion is not a buffet. Today, it often feels like it is, right? Come into the religious buffet. Well, I love the way Zen Buddhism makes me feel when I meditate, so I'm going to take a little bit of that off the salad bar and put it on my plate. Oh, Hinduism, I love the plurality of gods. 330 million gods, one for, one for everybody, so I'm going, to, I'm going to put some of that on my plate. Oh, but I, I love the fact that in Mormonism, I could become perhaps my own god one day of my own planet. That sounds great. I'll, I'll put that on there. Oh, but Jesus, Jesus said some great stuff in the New Testament. I love, I'm going to put some of that on there. Is that how this works? No, it's not a garment, garment patch Jesus. This is not some patchwork deal. This is completely getting rid of the old way of life and completely embracing a whole new way of life informed entirely by the biblical Jesus. Let's move to point number three. The wineskins. Verse 17. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed but new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. So essentially the way these wineskins work, as you read about it, and it's pretty much agreement on this, a small animal uh, would die, 
and the animal, this is kind of, well, I won't go through all the gory details, but they, they, would, they would sew it up in such a way, fur out, that the skins of the animal would be able to hold wine. And they would pour wine into these new wine skins, and they would sew it up, and they would cover it. And the, as the wine ferments, these new wineskins would be able to expand as, as the fermentation process happens to accommodate the wine, and everything's fine. But after you've already used a new wineskin for a while, and it becomes an old wineskin, all the stretching and malleability wears out and becomes very brittle. And so if you take an empty old wineskin and you take fresh new wine and you pour it into an old wineskin, this old animal skin, and you seal it up, what's going to happen? The fermentation process begins, the wine begins to expand as the gases do whatever they do, and suddenly the wineskin that is brittle and old, it can't expand anymore, it tears and bursts, and you lose both the wineskin and the wine, you lose everything. It's a similar illustration, right, to the, to the garment here. So what, what Jesus is saying is this. Here's, I think, the first and most immediate application. You guys are practicing fasting the way you are because you don't understand what my coming into this world has ushered in. You don't know what time it is in redemptive history. If you knew what time it was, you wouldn't be trying to put my fresh wine into your old structures of religion. If you try to put my fresh wine into your old structures of religion, the whole thing's going to fall apart. You're not going to understand what is actually happening. I don't want to lose you on this quote. I'll read you a quote from Don Carson explaining this. Here's what he says, quote, What this means, of course, is that the new wine Jesus is introducing simply cannot be stored in the old wineskins of the structures of Judaism. The old structures could not stand the pressure. New structures would have to be used in conjunction with this new wine. The dimensions of this claim are nothing less than astonishing. Here is someone, Jesus, who is proposing to overturn the prevailing structures of Jewish religion on the ground that they are inadequate to contain the new revelation and the new situation that he himself was introducing. Do you hear the audacity of that claim if it was not true? An amazing thing. Let me quote from Ligonier Ministries. They say this, quote, Jesus did not conform to their expectations of piety, religious practice, not because their views of piety were entirely wrong, but because God was doing a new thing If they were to receive Jesus, they would have to adjust their expectations and not try to contain the new in the forms of the old. So here's some examples of what this might mean to flesh it out. If you bring Jesus in and try to put his new wine in the old wineskins of Judaism and the religion of the time, here's the problem. If you continue going to the temple and offering animal sacrifice and doing all the rituals there, have you really understood what Jesus has come to do? No, because you're looking in the wrong place, right? Jesus has come. When he dies, he is the true Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We no longer need animal sacrifice because Jesus has come. Now get this, once Jesus has died, we no longer need to practice the Day of Atonement every year. We no longer have to take three trips to Jerusalem every year, right? Gentile converts don't need to embrace circumcision in the Mosaic Code anymore. What is going on? We need new wineskins for the new wine. We need new religious structures to maintain and to contain what Jesus is introducing in this new redemptive era. It's called the New Covenant Era. So the civil and ceremonial laws and these kinds of things are fulfilled in Jesus in such a way that we are no longer bound by them as they were during the old covenant era. And Jesus says, if you try to contain what I'm doing in the old covenant structures, the whole thing is going to tear apart. You're going to lose everything. No, you got to understand that my introducing into this world, I'm the true temple. You don't go to a building, you come to me. I'm the meeting place between God and man. I am God made flesh dwelling among you. If you want sacrifice, you don't go to a priest in the line of Aaron. You come to me, the priest in the order of Melchizedek, 
who has risen and has eternal life and I will never die again and you come to me for acceptance before God. If you want a priest to intercede for you, you don't go to the city of Jerusalem, you go to the priest in heaven, the high priest before God sitting at his right hand pleading for us with his blood. And on and on and on. You see how different it is. We need new wineskins, new structures for the new wine that Jesus has introduced in this time. So here are some of the things we want to be careful of as we come to a close today. You know what? Let, let, me, let me quote this from Ligonier. Because this is another way to apply this. Less, perhaps less the main point, but I still, I still think it's a secondary application of the point. Some traditions we have in the church. Over time, traditions can be good things, but they can sometimes get in the way. They can sometimes need to be changed and these kinds of things. Here's what Ligonier Ministries says. Christians have, throughout the history of the church, created many religious structures and rituals in order to, to develop a closer walk with God. At their best, things such as perhaps prayer books or specific patterns of spiritual disciplines and other devotional aids have served as a helpful framework that have assisted many people in deepening their piety. But at worst, when things that have not been given immediately by God are treated as having been given directly by the Lord Himself, they have become burdensome in the church. This reality shows how careful we must be not to treat good things as ultimate things, that we must not allow useful spiritual practices to become markers of salvation when our Creator has not made them such. Sometimes the need for reform is so great that the fresh work of God cannot be contained in the old or expected forms. So let me reread one more time here, verse 17. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wineskin is put into fresh wineskins and so both are preserved. Let me just say, I don't think when he says both are preserved, he means the old and the new. I think he means the new wineskins and the new wine are both preserved because if one were to burst, we would lose both. But we preserve the new wineskins and the new wine. Both are preserved. They are not ultimately going uh, to uh, fail. Turn with me real quick to Luke chapter 5, to your right. Luke chapter 5. And you'll see at the end of that chapter, the same story is covered, but Luke gives us one extra little line that I want to mention in closing. So look with me at Luke 5, the very end of the chapter, verse 38. Luke 5, 38. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins, and then Luke gives us one extra sentence. And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. No one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. That's a debated phrase, but I'll tell you what I think it means. I think Jesus here is speaking to the danger of any of us if we get set in the wrong patterns of the way of life. So we might get used to old wineskins. It might be a way that is not truly centered on Christ. But because we're drinking the old wineskin and we're so used to the old wine, we say, I don't need the new. I'm content with the old structures. I'm content with the old way of doing things. I don't need Jesus. I'm satisfied with what life is giving me right now. So I want to end on this point. If that is you, if you're saying, you know what? There are parts of my life I just don't want to give to Jesus. I, I, I've always done it this other way. I've always lived this other way. I've always believed a different way. I don't want to fully submit to Jesus. That frightens me. I'm enjoying my old wine. Thank you very much. I don't want the new. I would ask you to consider laying aside whatever it is that is holding you back, whether it's worldview, belief system, practice, thinking, desire that is sinful and not what God would have, to lay that old wine aside and to embrace the new wine that Christ brings and the new wineskins, the new structures that Christ brings through His saving death 
and resurrection. Let's bow our heads together. Lord Jesus, it is an amazing thing that you say in this passage. You are the groom come in the flesh to save your bride. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. God, there is nothing that we bring in our hands. We are empty-handed. We come to you for all of our saving needs, and we receive them by faith and by faith alone. God, if there is any way in which anyone in this room is holding on to the old garment of life in this world, that might be a Judaism that rejects Jesus as Messiah, the old wine, which is most immediately relevant, but it might also be a secular view of life that refuses the wine that Jesus brings. It might be an alternative religion or a mixture of religious beliefs. We want to patch them all together and maintain some sort of made-up whole, but Jesus will tear away from that. The true Jesus will not mix and match with other belief systems. Give us the humility and the grace to fling away the old garment, the old man, and to embrace the new man in Christ. And God, if we're honest, everyone in this room is guilty of having ways of thinking, patterns of thought, things that we say on a regular basis that are less than what you require of us. There are probably sins in our lives that we've grown accustomed to and grown callous to. We excuse them, we belittle them, we, don't, we justify them, we rationalize them. God, give us the insight and the clarity to get rid of those blind spots, to see our sin clearly, and to fling away every vestige of the old man. Help us to embrace the new man in Christ. Help us to get rid of the old wine and the old wineskins to embrace the new structures of redemptive history that come in the new covenant through the bridegroom, Jesus. And I pray that we would give our all to him. We would entrust him fully, forever, and eternally by your grace, and that we would find our joy, our righteousness, and our security entirely in him. So God, be with us now, even as we sing this next song. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.